0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy and today I am joined by a very special guest, Jonathan Strickland.
1: Hey there.
0: So you guys probably remember Jonathan Strickland. He joined um, he joined both of us a few months ago as the admiral for our Renaissance Festival episode. But this time he is here in his real life version. <laughs> yes. Presenting on uh, technology, which is your your specialty.
1: My forte, as they say. Yeah. There, there will be no huzzas in this particular episode.
0: <laughs> maybe we could squeeze one in at the end or maybe, something. Maybe. But Jonathan is the co-host of Tech Stuff, as probably a lot of y'all know, and he also is a staff writer who specializes in technology articles. And Deplena and I often talk about how we would like somebody like Jonathan or Chris to join us for technology related episodes sometimes when we really want something better explained than we're able to do. And we've actually covered a lot of the same topics as you and Chris too.
1: Yes, that's true. We've, we've covered several things, including Ada Lovelace, who uh, I think got an enormous amount of praise on both of our podcasts. The
0: enchantress of Numbers.
1: She was phenomenal, she absolutely was phenomenal. Cool. To be able to reach a point where not only was she able to write programs for a machine that did not yet exist, but recognize that numbers can substitute in for things and actually represent other forms of media like music or pictures at a time where there was no device to do that on is Beyond my imagination, and so, to truly. do all
0: that while being the daughter of Lord Byron, of course.
1: Well, you know, I would say that helps. <laughs> you know, probably had a little dose of the crazy in there too, but no, absolutely phenomenal and other topics as well. But yes, I, and this is one that that I know that stuff you missed in history classes touched on uh, related topics, and we at Tech stuff have talked about some related topics, but we wanted to sort of look at the overall picture of what cryptography was like during World War II.
0: And this will be sort of the kickoff of a little series that I'm going to do with a few other How Stuff Works podcast co hosts, too, all focusing on something that's history related, but also focused on their specialty. So that's why Jonathan has picked codes today, something that is tech related, but has a really fascinating history behind it, too.
1: Yes, and that history stretches way back before World War II, of course. Uh, And I I even had a little crash course in cryptography I wrote up so that we could kind of have a a common language to work from. And it does come from a pair of Greek words. It essentially means uh, hidden writing is what cryptography really boils down to. And it is the idea of hiding a message by encoding it in some way. And a very common way is using a cipher, where you are replacing letters within a message with some other letter or symbol or number, And uh, you're using a very specific key so that someone who receives that message, the intended recipient, can take the encoded message, they take the key, and then using the key, they decode the message. But ideally, anyone else who intercepts said message would just have a bunch of gibberish that they could not understand. Now, in reality a lot of these ciphers don't remain secure forever and as there are, we will see <laughs> right and there you, we have some very good examples of that but there are a lot of different types of ciphers and one of those uh the the most basic is the monoalphabetic cipher that's where you use one symbol to replace each letter. And
0: probably everybody is familiar with that one. It's what I used in my spy club as a kid. It's pretty straightforward. Maybe when you're eight, it seems like it would be unbreakable, but in reality, it's pretty easy to crack.
1: Right, right. This would be when you might say, all right, let's shift all the letters over four letters and no one will ever figure it (laughs) out, right? So A becomes D and B becomes E. And uh, uh, it seems at first when you are unaware of how to analyze cryptography that that would be you know, that be fairly secure but just using something simple as a frequency analysis which is typically the frequency that certain letter combinations appear in any given language so if you know that the message was written in english you know it's ciphered but it's an english based language you could start looking for letter combinations that would give away what the coded letters are so you Look for double letters, for example. Those could be T's or L's, things like that. Things or
0: very short words.
1: Very short words, exactly. If you haven't, if you if you have your text actually broken up in the same grouping of of letters as your uh, plain text words are, that's a dead giveaway. Which is why a lot of ciphers are written in five letter blocks. So that you might even have two short words combined together, or a very long word broken across a couple of blocks and it makes it harder to detect, but...
0: Even then, pretty easy to figure out using frequency analysis. So another version of this, one that's a little bit more complicated, is the polyalphabetic ciphers. Mm -hmm. And those substitute each letter with a different symbol based upon where the letter appeared in the message. So instead of a direct substitution just it's the first letter it's the second letter and so on
1: it can be like that yeah and there's there's a couple different methods of doing this where for example the first time the letter if the letter a appears in your message it may be enciphered i'm just grabbing a letter at random with l and the second time the letter a appears it may be the letter d and it all depends upon the specific set of rules you have set down for that key, uh, the algorithm, if you like. That's the specific protocol that you follow. And that does make it much more difficult to break because you can't guarantee that every time you see a certain cipher that it's going to translate to the same letter.
0: So moving on from there, we get a little bit more complicated and have polygraphic ciphers. Those use a combination of letters, numbers, or symbols for each coded letter. So we don't have this direct uh, translation anymore. It's not going to be something that you can just break out into the original words in the plain text to the cipher text.
1: That's right. You... It's very confusing when you first get one of these messages because you can't be sure how many characters represent one single letter. And by doing that, you really make it more difficult to break the code. And then I think the last one we have here is the transposition ciphers, which it's kind of like a word jumble where you've taken the letters of the uh, of the message, the plain text message, and you just mixed up the letters. So you're not replacing any letters here. Uh, you're mixing them up according to, again, a prearranged code. So you might say, all right, the 27th letter of this message should appear first. Then the fifth letter of the message appears second. And you just follow that key. And as long as the other person has the, the same key, they can unscramble it. But of course, that's not terribly safe either. People with a lot of imagination can piece this together. It's sort of like Good finding for Sunday
0: morning, not exactly. for your top secret message.
1: Yeah. A hobbyist could could crack that with enough ingenuity and time.
0: So another element in here and one that we're going to be talking about quite a bit in our second episode on this, uh, this subject is code books. So code books of course contain a list of phrases that link to specific code words. So if you were just reading them, they might be familiar words, but they don't have any meaning to you. You can't, you can't decipher it. You can't intuit what the word might represent in any way unless you have the book.
1: Right. So you could possibly break a cipher and you know that This next word is hawk, but you don't know what hawk means. It could, it could mean a bird, but it might actually stand for something else. Probably does in the case of wartime. And, you know, you might be able to make some guesses, but you're not necessarily going to know. So code books were also very, very important on both sides during the, uh, the World War II.
0: And if you combine that with ciphers, you are getting a pretty tough code, finally. Mm-hmm. And then a related technique to cryptography is called steganography, which is hiding a message within an image or some other kind of medium.
1: Right. This is really super cool stuff. This is where, let's say, Sarah, that I met you on the street and I handed you a postcard. And the postcard just said, hey, how are you doing? And it has nothing else on, there's no other message there. And you think, oh, well, that's just completely innocent. But on the flip side of the the, uh, postcard, where the picture is, which looks like this nice little uh, landscape, you could maybe actually notice that along the edge of a lake, there's really a message that's in there. And you look more carefully and you see that there's something hidden. And it's hidden from plain sight. uh, And it can get a lot more complicated, especially with today's technology, where you can hide things in. A URL. Uh, you can hide things within a QR code. It's it's lots of different ways of hiding a message, but it's done in such a way that, from the casual observer's perspective, no message even existed.
0: I like this one, although it doesn't sound quite as practical as the others, especially for wartime communications. Definitely unless you're not. really thinking romantic spy sort of stuff, right, passing yes. postcards to each yes, other. Yes, exactly. All right. So now that we've gotten a background on cryptography, mm-hmm. we can start talking about how it was used in World War II, which is sort of the heyday almost, it seems, of cryptography. It's
1: it's really – I would say World War II is probably the foundation for modern cryptography. The, the developments that were made during that era leading up to World War II but really uh, intensely built upon during the years of World War II – that has led to to the way we use cryptography today. So it's it's an important time in history as far as this whole development of science is concerned.
0: It is, and we're going to start by talking about the Axis powers use of cryptography, Mm -hmm. partly because we want to start this whole thing off by talking about the Enigma machine. It's probably the most famous example of cryptography in World War II, I'd say, and something that we have both talked about on our podcast. Dublina and I talked about it in our Alan Turing episode. You and Chris talked about it in your Alan Turing episode. That's true. Uh, it's something that I think most people out there are, they've at least heard of it.
1: Yes. And uh, if you were to look at one of these things, it would look like it was a typewriter and a whole bunch of light bulbs and some plugs going every which way and you might wonder what was the purpose of this it looks like thing. a
0: mad inventor thought it, it up it
1: really does and, and the person who actually thought it up was not a mad inventor he was he was <laughs> quite he was quite ingenious in his own way Is dr arthur sherbius and that was in 1923 and he was inventing this not as a means for the government to pass along secret messages to various branches of the military or intermilitary messages it wasn't meant for that at all it was meant for corporations to try and send secret messages so they could keep corporate secrets so that other competitors wouldn't steal corporate yeah, information. keep private
0: information private. But, of course, the German government quickly realized that this could be a useful tool for very secret communications. And so in 1926, the German Navy started using a modified version of the Enigma machine. Mm. and And from there, it sort of picked up. The German Army followed in 1928. The Air Force started using one in 1933. We should say, though, they were all modified. They were all a complicated version of this commercial machine.
1: Right, and they even evolved during the course of World War II somewhat. Now, if you want to know what the basic machine is, you have to imagine uh, imagine a disc, a round wheel, all right? And it's thick. It's about maybe half an inch thick. And on either side of the wheel are contacts, electrical contacts that an electrical uh, uh, current can pass through. Along the outer edge of the wheel where if it were a tire, this is the part that would make contact with the ground. Along that outer edge are letters that represent positions. Now, you have three of these in a basic Enigma machine, all right? And you the way you set these, the, how you set them determines the pathway the electricity takes when it comes in on one side and goes out the other. Okay. Now, uh, you can change the, the orientation of these reels in multiple ways. So that makes it very complex. So this pathway could take lots of little crisscrossy ways. And uh, what it boils down to is the typewriter part with all the keys. When you press a letter, it sends an electric signal into the rotors. It goes through this complicated pathway that's determined by the orientation of those rotors. When it comes out the other side, it lights up a light bulb representing a different letter. When you, so when you press the letter A, perhaps the letter Q so lights up. That's your ciphertext. Yes. And so it takes two people to do this. Someone has the normal message, the message that is supposed to be encoded, and they press a key. There's a second person who watches the light bulbs and writes down which letter lights up. And after you press that A, the rotor, the first rotor on the left, rotates one position. So that means the pathways for the, that electric current to follow through have changed.
0: From the first letter to the second. That's
1: right. So if the first two letters were AA for some reason, and you pressed A and the Q lit up, the second time you press A, perhaps the M lights up. And every time after that, it's going to light up differently.
0: So you already have so many possibilities just from that simple
1: description,
0: but right. there's a way to make it even more complicated. Right.
1: There, there are two things that make this even more complex. One is that once you go through a certain number of, of uh, uh, moves with that first rotor, the second rotor can rotate, which means you've just added a whole new set of, of variables. And with the German Navy, they had four rotors in their Enigma machines, which means that once the third one would rotate, it just made it even more complex. And it, this allows you to have a key that does not repeat uh, it does mean that whoever has the recipient, whoever the recipient is, they have to have a machine set up the exact same way that your machine was set up. Now, the other thing that made this complicated was they had plug boards. So unfair, really. <laughs> the plug boards, and what the plug boards did was you were, you would attach a cable, uh, that would swap the input of a certain key with another key. So let's stick with A. Let's say that you have a plug in the A and a plug in the H, which means every time you press A, it's as if you had pressed H on an unaltered machine.
0: okay.
1: So that makes it even more complex. And the plug boards were added a little later. That was an evolution of the Enigma machine. And the Germans were so confident that this machine was uncrackable, that they never, ever worried about any one intercepting their messages because those ciphered messages would be impossible to decipher.
0: They were a little too confident though because there were a few problems with the whole thing. Yes. One being that the machine couldn't encode a letter as itself. So you've been using the example A. A could never be A. No matter what combination of rotors you were using, no matter how many cables were involved, A just couldn't be A. That's a pretty big clue. I mean it doesn't sound like it reduces your your options that much, but it really does if you're thinking about it in terms of probability.
1: Right, yes. That's That was one of the things Turing jumped on right away, was he said, well, if this machine cannot encode a letter as itself, that removes one option out. And by removing one option, you have given us a foothold. That was definitely a weakness. Another was that in order to make this work, again, you had to have two machines and you had to have them both set up the same way. Which meant if someone were able to get hold of a machine and a code book so that they could see which, which setup was needed for any particular day, you know, everyone had to know how to set their machine up once they received the message, then they could in, intercept a message and then interpret how to decipher it. Um,
0: you just had to know the day the message had been sent.
1: You had to know the day the message was sent. So And you had to have a corresponding code book that would tell you the right setting for that day. But even without that, once they started learning how the actual machine worked, they were able to start thinking, how can we simulate this by building something of our own that can take this information and perhaps decipher it? So if we intercept a message, we can... If, if Even if we don't know what the original settings were, perhaps we'll be able to create something that can run enough simulations through where we can crack the code.
0: And Polish mathematicians got a, a toehold in this by intercepting an Enigma machine so they could see a little bit what, what they were dealing with and what kind of machine would need to be created to possibly break this code.
1: Yes, and they ended up sharing that information with Bletchley Park, which... A famous, famous institution there during World War II. That was, that was Codebreaker Central for uh, the British.
0: A manor house, and I should take this opportunity, too. I think one time we said it was in London. It's outside of London. That was the whole point because it was more secure being away from the city. But, yeah, with this information that the Polish mathematicians had with their intercepted Enigma, the teams at Bletchley Park started working on um, building these early computers called BOMs to essentially simulate the enigma machine and and figure out how it worked and figure out how to break it but what i think is interesting is that this was i was talking to you about this earlier and it's kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around but they're working by process of elimination rather than like okay what was it set on it's more what was it how was it not set
1: yes yeah by eliminating all the potential factors they narrow it down to the one that it actually was Uh, it really reminds me of quantum computing actually i'm not going to go into it <laughs> don't go there but Josh. <laughs> but i'm just saying similar thing you're eliminating all the all, all of the possibilities to get down to the one reality and it is pretty amazing uh the bombas that the polish uh mathematicians had created ended up informing the british when they started creating the the bomba b o m b e i always like to say the bomba <laughs> and uh and yeah that was um That was a huge, huge jump in both crypto, cryptanalysis and just the British war effort in general.
0: And one thing about all of these these codes and decoding them is there's so many different names. There's the name of the machine. There's the name that the opposing force usually calls the code. Mm-hmm. And then the name of the, the machine that is able to decode it. But in this case, the Allied efforts to decode the German messages was known as Ultra.
1: Yeah, uh, it was known as Ultra, but you never said it. Ever. ultra you pretty much
0: didn't say anything at Bletchley Park, right. it sounds like.
1: <laughs> it's all done through semaphore and mime. Uh, no, it, it, ultra was such a secret term that you were not supposed to utter it to other people. Ultra was just a general term that referred to intercepted and deciphered messages. And because it was such secret information, you could not... You could not reveal that to anyone who was not already classified to know it. So much so that there were people who lost their jobs, who were court-martialed because they refused to deliver sources of information because it fell under the umbrella of Ultra. And so there were people who were discredited during the war because they were maintaining this level of secrecy, which is pretty phenomenal. And they had a huge burden, which is the flip side to cryptography. If you've intercepted a message and you've successfully deciphered it and you now know what that information is, how do you act on that? Because if you act on it in a way that reveals to the enemy that you have understood what their messages are, they are going to take efforts to change the way that they are encoding things, thus putting you back to square one.
0: Yeah, as long as your enemy feels that their code is unbreakable you're in a great position because they're not going to take any more precautions with it otherwise they can just develop a new machine develop a more difficult code and yeah like you said you're back at square one then
1: yes and it is i mean it, it's just it's it's hard to think about because you know that a lot of these messages had life or death would consequences lives. Yeah. exactly and they had to take very careful consideration of how to act on it so that they could preserve as many lives as possible without tipping their hand.
0: Was it information that could have been procured from some other source, aside from breaking the code, or how important was it in the grand scheme of things? Now,
1: fortunately for the Allies, uh, the Germans were extremely confident that the Enigma (laughs) Code was unbreakable, and I think the only way that they would have... I think think what their normal uh, routine was, the Germans this is, uh, would be that if they felt that the code was in danger, they would issue new code books, and they would have a new set of code books go out to the field uh, rather than scrap the system and start with something new. So they'd stick with the system. They would just say, oh, well, what's, what is what uh, is at risk here are the physical code books that tell people what settings they need to have the Enigma machine on. And I didn't really talk about it, but the recipient of the message, to, to decipher a, a message from the, the uh, coded one You would give the 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 ciphered message to a typist who would have their own Enigma machine set up just like the first one. They'd press the first letter. So if that A was a Q, they would press Q, and then the A light bulb lights up. Yep. And so then you would have a second person taking down the plain text message exactly.
0: Um, and I, I kind of was interested that the secrecy for all of this really extended beyond the war, too. The The of machines were all destroyed on mm-hmm. Churchill's orders after the war. I read one account of one of the women who had worked on the machines at Bletchley Park and talking about how her crew just happily destroyed them because they were so temperamental. Right. And they were just glad to, to see them go. Yeah,
1: um, that's but, not an unusual story, either. There are a lot of stories about, Destroyed uh, cryptography machines because it was just considered to be too dangerous to let that information out further
0: technology that could still be useful, um, although today of course, most of these machines have been rebuilt. you can see a lot of them if you visit Bletchley Park, which I think is cool that they 've they 've gone to the trouble of illustrating these because if you watch a video of one it 's a little easier to to comprehend than if you're just trying to read about it or right. hearing about it to to see exactly how they
1: work. Right, and there's some software out there as well that uh, simulates a lot of these different machines so that you could type in a message and it would come out as a ciphered message. And again, you have a friend who has that same software running and you tell them, all right, set your software to this setting and run this message through and see what you get. And they might say, you know, you are a poopy head. That's, that's all the messages I get from Chris all the time.
0: It's really worth worth coding. <laughs> yeah.
1: He takes a lot of effort to get that across.
0: Uh, another thing though is Enigma kind of gets all the glory, I'd say. Yeah. You know, it's the only with if we were saying earlier that it's probably one most people are familiar with, but mm-hmm. it might also be the only German code that people are familiar with.
1: Sure, and it's not the only German code by a long shot. Uh, you wanted to speak specifically to the Lorenz machines. I did. Which it, the Lorenz machine was interesting. It was a steam-powered machine, so a little bit different kinda and also kind of old school. Kind of <laughs> old school, little steampunky, little steampunky. Uh, it actually would send a message over a telephone wire or over a telegraph wire, um, and you would have two machines set up where you would type in a message onto one machine. It encodes it using a, uh, an XOR algorithm, and I to, to explain that would probably take an entire podcast on <laughs> its own. But just, just to say that each letter is a symbol uh, assigned a certain binary uh, value. And then there's a key that also has a binary value. You add those two values together, it creates a third value. that becomes the ciphered text. So as long as the other machine again has the right key, uh, then you can decipher it. And again, the Germans were very confident about this. They thought, well, we've got this. The key is is this, this roll of tape, essentially, that both sides, uh, both the sender and the recipient, they have a, identical strips of tape that have these values in it. the uh, The coded message gets sent across the wire, they run the tape through the receiving machine, and then they get the plain text information. Thinking that no one in between would ever be able to crack that code. So there wasn't a whole lot of fear about intercepting those messages either on the side of the Germans. But there should have been.
0: There should have been. I mean, Lorenz too was used for just the most important information. It was reserved for high command for Hitler. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of ironic if you think about how they were so confident with Enigma that they, they wanted this extra code. But it was eventually broken by the machine colossus. And um, Letchley park had a quote, and I kind of wanted to get your opinion on this. They okay. called it the world's first practical electronic digital information processing machine, a forerunner of today's computers.
1: Yes, it was the first of that nature. Uh, you can look at ENIAC, which was not yet built. It was not finished until 1946. Um, and all the other... Preceding computers were electromechanical, meaning that there were actually gears and parts that moved, mm-hmm. not just electronic circuits created by either wires. Or, you know, today we think of microchips, but back in the day, we're talking about actual physical wires running to and fro and everywhere. That's why these machines tended to be the size of a fairly sized room. Colossus is
0: an apt term. Yeah, there were
1: <laughs> there were ten of them, and they were huge. Um, yeah, it, that's. Perfectly accurate. It is definitely a predecessor to today's computer. And of course, just as you would imagine, today's computer, the computer that's on your desktop, perhaps the computer that you have in a pocket or in a a bag near you right now, far more powerful than Colossus.
0: And I watched a video of Colossus, you know, recommending these to folks to, to check them out and kind of get a better feel for how these things look and how they work. It reminded me almost of a workout machine, partly because of the tapes. Yes. All wrapped around the the little reels. And that combined with a wall of electronics, it really does take up an entire room. So that's amazing to, to think that that is a computer predecessor.
1: Yep, yep. And again, it was there to to simulate these Lorenz machines and try and crack what those codes were. And it was a phenomenal uh, achievement as far as technology is concerned.
0: Okay, so we've probably discussed Germany pretty thoroughly by now. I would say so. (laughs) So we're going to move over to Japan. And one thing that I found really fascinating was that Japanese communications had been monitored by the United States long, long before World War II began.
1: Right, more than a decade before.
0: And Japan was not aware of that for quite a long time, too.
1: But that, that tends to be the best way. <laughs> That's to, usually how it happens. Yeah, yeah.
0: True. If you're
1: doing everything correctly. If
0: you're doing things how you should. So yeah, the Americans had started screening Japanese telegrams between diplomats in November 1921, and these were really simple messages. So nothing like what we've been talking about with the Enigma. They were easy to break, and they gave the Cipher Bureau, which was the the name of this um, code breaking organization in the U.S. at the time, mm-hmm. and its director Herbert Yardley access to a lot of useful information. So it's diplomatic information. It's not military, but still gives you some helpful stuff if you're negotiating treaties, you know, that sort of thing. Right,
1: right. (laughs) Definitely. A little inside peek. It's a, yeah, some insider trading uh, on a grand scale Mm -hmm. is what this is.
0: But by the late 1920s, this uh, the, the, To do this, they relied on domestic cable companies' information, which is something kind of relevant to this. But mm-hmm. they, by the late 1920s, use of that information and plus monitoring of airwaves started to become kind of distasteful, frowned upon. And so eventually the Cypher Bureau dissolved and Yardley out of work, um, trying to make some money during the Great Depression, decided to write a book and write a series of articles for the Saturday Evening Post on codes and code breaking, his experience, his experience monitoring the information coming out of Japan. And it set some shockwaves going through the world that this information was so easily available. This
1: this kind of proves why it's important to keep that secret part mm-hmm. secret because <laughs> once, once it got out that this was very easy for them to break the codes, the message that sends is we need to look at how we are ciphering our messages, how we're encoding things, and try to introduce as much randomness as possible. And... Randomness is what makes codes so difficult to break. You know, once you start being able to detect patterns, it's game over. Because it's just a matter of time before you can start, before you have to, before that code gets cracked. So you want to avoid patterns as much as possible and have as much randomness in there as possible. But here's a trick. Random is hard. Uh, computers are not truly good at producing random numbers. They are pseudo-random because they're still following a set of rules in order to create random numbers.
0: Rules created by a person.
1: And on top of that, there needs to be someone else out there who has the same set of random data so they can decode the message you send them. So there's going to be at least one copy of whatever random, quote-unquote, random message you create or random key you create in order to cipher a message. But that was what really got... Countries around the world thinking, how can we create more of a random feel for our uh, encoding technology? We so need to that, up
0: the random. Yeah.
1: If we don't, then our messages get cracked. We might as well just be sending plain text.
0: It would be a lot easier and a lot faster. And And so that did sort of lead to a a shift in adopting these more complex mechanical machines, like we've talked about already with the Enigma, which was from the 20s, adopting machines more like that rather than these uh, old style codes.
1: Right, right. And the Japanese chose a slightly different approach. Their machines did not look like the Enigma and did not while they were able to generate randomness in a very similar way that the Enigma machine did, so the outcome was very similar. The actual mechanics were different.
0: That's, they were, that's what? what you're gonna have to explain. Oh,
1: you want to know how? <laughs> okay, so it's an electromagnetic device. And it's called a it's a step switching device as opposed to rotors. But very similar in that if you encode a character, there is a step switch that moves the encoder one step further so that the next key you press gets coded to a different one than it would be if it had been the first key. That sounds really complicated, it but does. really, again, <laughs> we'll, we'll stick with the A's and the A's, right? That, that you're coding two A's in a row. Obviously, this would not be the case with a Japanese typewriter, but <laughs> if you press the letter A, then the first step would be to encode that to whatever the, the setting has it. So we'll go with H. Okay. And then the second, it th- that would then step up the code a, a, a step. You press A again, it would then code to a different letter. So Z. And very much the same way as the Enigma machine, but the actual parts didn 't move the same way, whereas the enigma had these rotors the uh, The Japanese typewriters used this this uh, electromagnetic step system and um, and they had interesting code names
0: they did so the first of these electromagnetic code machines created by the Japanese was called the cipher machine type A. It was known as RED to the U.S., or Mm -hmm. the code it produced was known as RED. Mm -hmm. Um, That code was fully broken, though, in 1937 with a clue from one word. The Japanese word for AND, essentially, was enough enough of a hint for them to break code RED.
1: Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where they're looking for repetition and patterns. And if it's a word that's used a lot... And if you're if you don't have enough steps there, if your key repeats fairly frequently, then you run the danger of someone using frequency analysis on your message and figuring out what it means. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that the enigma was so good about was that because there were so many possible combinations that unless your message was incredibly long and I'm talking novel length, then you're not going to have to worry about the pattern forming because you are not going to run out of those variations.
0: Well and another problem too is that the Japanese were sending several standard messages yes. with their messages. So well we should go back to you. so they did decipher the code sent out by RED. And by that point though, by 1938, messages through RED announced that there was another machine. That's probably a mistake too to announce your new Machine yeah. through your old one that not a,
1: not a great has choice. been
0: compromised. And that new announcement was for the alphabetical typewriter 97, which was codenamed Purple. That's probably the more famous of the two. Yes,
1: Purple is definitely more famous. I, and I read, although from a source that I consider questionable. So this could be <laughs> apocryphal. Okay. I, I, I want to precede my, my message with that, that the reason why I was called purple is because that was, in fact, the color of the binders that the United States used to hold all the intercepted and deciphered messages. Sounds so, like a good story. Yeah. I mean, seems legit. As they say on the interwebs, I,
0: I do have to say while researching this, though code red, code purple, I just kept on getting a lot of information on air quality. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but also very fitting for Atlanta.
0: It is. Yeah,
1: uh, and they, the 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 United States was able to crack these codes too. Um, the The purple codes were not as sophisticated as the Enigma machines were, uh, and the United States cracked them. And again, these are mostly diplomatic m- messages. They're not military messages. But the United States is keeping tabs on what's going on in the in the Pacific. And they called their interception and deciphered messages uh, magic, because that's what it seems like when you're able to decode something, I guess.
0: It's very Tinker Tailor soldier spy.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, Gary Oldman would have had a lot of work <laughs> during this time.
0: And it took them a while to decode it, though. We shouldn't make it sound like it was just a, an easy task.
1: No, it, it took quite some time. It took more than a year, a year and a half of hard work to crack the code. But they were able to figure that out. Um, and uh it's interesting. The person who discovered the correlation uh was someone that you might not consider at first, considering the time period, right? So we're in the middle of... uh it was in September 1940, so World War II is is going on. The Americans are not really; they're just really monitoring at the moment. Mm-hmm. The person who uh, who discovered the correlation in a me- in a couple of messages, which was enough to allow us to break the code, was Genevieve Groshen. Uh, so a a woman was the one who who discovered the correlation. And again, it's one of those things where we often overlook the people who first make these. These uh, uh, discoveries, because you know the big story about breaking the code is interesting, but sometimes we lose sight of the people. And I thought, well, that's someone that we should know about clearly, mm-hmm. because this is someone who was able to find the first stepping stone that allowed us to crack the code.
0: Alan Turing's getting his moment. so yes. there's, there's plenty to go around. Um, so you know, the timeline by this point, you're probably thinking, well, if Purple was cracked in 1940. Um, what about Pearl Harbor? How much was known? It, they were diplomatic messages, so there's no evidence that they were receiving information about Pearl Harbor. That doesn't mean, though, there wasn't some pretty important information that was gained from understanding Purple.
1: Yeah, there was, there's still some confusion and there are plenty of conspiracy theories about how much information was gleaned from Purple that could have prevented, off Pearl right? Could have at least prevented or at least prepared everyone in Hawaii for this attack. And uh, there was no specific message ever intercepted and deciphered that had anything to do with a specific attack on Pearl Harbor, according to all official records. And again, conspiracy theorists might disagree with that. Get but Ben
0: in here, maybe. <laughs> yeah, we have
1: to go with what history gives us, right? Yeah. And what history says is that there was no way of knowing Directly through the intercepted messages about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, History would have unfolded a very different way, I'm sure had there been.
0: What's ironic is that some of the most important information that was gleaned from these messages was about Germany rather than Japan. Mm-hmm. Ironic because of how, how proud they were of the enigma if all this information was really getting out through purple anyway. Right. Um,
1: that, that probably would have made the Germans a little kind cross. Kind of upset, yeah. yeah.
0: The Japanese ambassador to Berlin, a man named Hiroshi Oshima, he uh, was pretty descriptive while talking about what was going on in Germany. And what the Nazi defenses were like, and all that information was being picked up through through magic. Um, so, a lot of information that ultimately helped prepare for the D-Day invasion. So Pearl Harbor is off the table, possibly, unless mm-hmm. we're going to go conspiracy theory on it. But D-Day, so yeah, still an important code to have broken.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's amazing to me when you look at some of the mistakes that were made. Uh, Because often mistakes are the only reason why certain codes were ever broken in the first place. Either they were mistakes in procedure where someone has set up a really secure system, but the people part of the system isn't so secure.
0: My favorite example of that is somebody making a mistake in the typing of the message. Mm -hmm. And instead of resetting everything so that the code is secure again just typing out a corrected message on the same settings right
1: right which so, makes
0: for just very slight differences between the two messages
1: right and that that was huge that was an enormous help i mean it, the the protocol for that was if you were to send a message and you made a mistake while enciphering it that you were supposed to set it to a new, whatever machine was involved, you were supposed to set it to the next setting. Start
0: over, start from
1: scratch. Start from scratch with a new setting so that all the message is going to be completely different. Because that way, the Allies don't know that it's the same message. But by setting it back to the the setting that was for the, the first time you tried to transmit it, that means two copies of this message go out. And that's enough for the allies to say, "Wait a minute, this is in common." There's the typo, <laughs> right? We can figure this out, and we can start working on what has gone wrong for them and right for us.
0: So, human error is a is a big part of these codes ultimately being cracked. It seems
1: ultimately, yes. I would say that things, everything from using common salutations uh, or a common prefix to whatever the message is, that would often give uh, the 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 analysts enough information to work on to start cracking a code
0: even a weather report the standards between a weather report the numbers or directions of wind might be different but it's going to have a lot of the same vocabulary
1: and that weather report information that's also a good point because one thing that the british thought of while they were trying to capture enigma machines so they could get enigma machines and code books uh, so that they you know the enigma machine was was fairly portable Fairly, in the sense that you could put one on a ship without Unlike too much the trouble. Loren. The Lorenz, not portable, uh, and the, the purple machines were not terribly portable either. In fact, uh, they just, it was, once you, once you built one, that's pretty much where it stayed. But the Enigma machine was different. You could actually move those around with effort. They were not, it wasn't a laptop, but <laughs> it, the the British figured out that the Germans were probably using Enigma codes not just on official military craft, but also on things like ships that were taking weather measurements. So weather research ships that are not military ships. And they thought, well, why are we focusing on capturing a German Navy vessel when we could capture one of these weather ships and get hold of the code books that way? And in fact, that's what a lot that's how a lot of the codes were broken they found code books that were accurate for that that time period and were able to start cracking codes so that's another instance of a mistake where you know you have to balance out who gets access to your your secret messages you have different
0: levels of codes yeah
1: yeah it was cuz again if the machines had worked exactly correctly, and that all the people had done what they were supposed the to
0: procedures do. perfectly. And
1: if the code books had remained perfectly secure, the Enigma code was uncrackable.
0: Next time though, we are going to be talking about some truly uncrackable codes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be talking about the Allies' use of cryptography during World War II. So it'll, it'll take us full circle from this discussion of Enigma and Purple and, and Lorenz and get into some Codes that aren't based on machines, which is a pretty huge difference. Indeed. More portable, for sure.
1: Yes. yes.
0: <laughs> so that'll be next time. I don't know. Do you have any other comments for for the use of codes by the Axis scholars? I, uh,
1: I think we've really covered it pretty well. What's interesting to me is something that I'll talk about more in our next episode, about how this sort of uh, technology has evolved and how we use it today. But that'll be a good bookend, I think, for that'll, the full discussion. Yeah, that'll be how we
0: wrap things up. So if you want to let us know your ideas about the access use of codes or just codes and spies and all sorts of things during World War II, you can email us. We're at History podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Twitter at MissedInHistory, and we are on Facebook. And, gosh, I'm sure we have articles on codes, don't we? Oh,
1: yeah, I wrote one.
0: Did you write one? Mm-hmm. Well, then you go ahead and sign us off. Oh, yeah.
1: So go to HowStuffWorks.com stuffworks.com and look up Code Breaking because that was one of my earliest articles and I've been here for nearly six years now. We started
0: the same week.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And and to this day it remains one of my favorites because it was just such a fascinating world and I even include in that article, a code that you can break.
0: Oh, so fun. Get out your your serial um, box sort of decoders and, right. and go for it. That's all right. pretty
1: much all you need. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so How Code Breaking Works by Jonathan Strickland at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.